Well, I hope um, I hope that long illustration that we ended with was helpful. I um, some of that language in the Trinitarian theological literature that you read can be hard. And it's especially hard when you don't really understand the concepts behind those words. And I really just believe that this idea of essence or substance is at the heart of it, really a pretty simple issue. Um, And once you get past that, it opens up access to some other things um, for you to read and be able to understand. So it was really my burden to give you the tools to take it further. I don't like talking and having people not understand what I'm saying. And so I take the labor and the pains of making sure I get everybody that I can uh, to understand these things. So I hope it was helpful. And if it was, praise God for it. So as I promised, we'll get back to our text. Colossians 1.15. It says this, He, that is Christ, is the image of of the invisible God. What this means is that Christ is of the same essence or substance as the Father. He shares in the divine nature fully and perfectly. We find a similar statement in Hebrews 1.3 where it says, He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Christ shares in the divine nature. He is the exact imprint of his nature such that when you see Christ, you see the Father, as we read in John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. By him I mean Christ. Lord said, Philip said to Christ, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And even as Jesus says himself in John 10.30, as I already quoted, I and the Father are one. Now, I am aware of some of the issues there in Hebrews 1.3 regarding that translation of the word that is translated in most um, reputable modern translations as nature or substance or essence. Um, I'm aware of some of the interesting interpretations the Unitarians have of that passage. Um, I chose not to go down that path. It's, it's kind of tangled, and I, I felt it wasn't appropriate for this sermon. I'm also it, What makes it a little bit more complicated, too, is that the only version that translates the word there for nature um, in some other way is the King James Version. So it has some issues there. King James Version translates it as person, the, ex- the exact imprint of his person. And so if you do some reading on those differences, you'll inevitably get to KJV-onlyism and how it's person and it's not nature. And, and then the Unitarians come in and they have their own ideas. And so if you're aware of those things, I did come across those, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there, okay? I don't think we need to. 
Um, let's compare the words of Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1.3, for example, with some of the texts that came up in the first series of this sermon. So we have, for example, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's our text. Hebrews 1.3 that I just read says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, what does that mean? I'm asserting that has to mean that Christ is of the same essence as the Father. So let's compare it with three Old Testament passages. Deuteronomy 34:39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. 2 Samuel 7:22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Psalm 86.10 For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Isaiah 44.6 Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. In the first message of this series, we underscored how God is alone in all that he is. There are none that are anything like him, none that can even approach him. Any interpretation of Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1.3 that does not say that Christ is of the same substance as the Father will clash with all of these Old Testament passages that underscore the uniqueness and oneness of God. If these passages don't say that Christ shares in the divine nature, that is Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1.3, if those passages don't say that Christ shares in the divine nature, that he is of the same essence as the Father, and that he is God himself, then what they're saying is that he is a lot like God. And that cannot be. Because there is none beside him, there is none who approach him. Christ is very God of very God. He is begotten, not made, from eternity. He is the one through whom all things exist, such that without him, nothing would exist. Divine titles are attributed to him in scripture. He himself says that he is the Alpha and Omega in Revelation. The works of God are ascribed to him, and the works of Christ are ascribed to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. He even receives worship. Doubting Thomas, being in the context of strict Jewish monotheism, says to Christ in no unclear terms, My Lord and my God, in John twenty twenty eight, And then Jesus accepts that epithet. What a difference between that and when John fell down and tried to worship that angel in Revelation. The angel said, don't worship me. I'm a servant just like you. Worship God. On the other hand, Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God, and he receives that title. Christ is of the same essence as the Father. That is the only way that we can interpret this in the light of the rest of Scripture. So moving on to the second part of our passage, we read that Christ was the first born of all creation. What does firstborn mean? 
Does this imply that Christ was created and so deny his deity? Now, this is what groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses would claim. Is there any merit to this? No, there isn't any merit to it, and it's actually not that hard to show this. There's no trickery here with grammar or anything. It's very simple to show that that's not the case. So first, let's look at the two definitions. You know how words can have more than one definition? Well, this has more than one definition. Um, So let's look at the two definitions for firstborn here. Number one, the word firstborn there can mean to be born before another. Firstborn in birth order. With this definition, birth implies creation. And so it would imply that Christ is a created being and therefore not divine. The word is used in the same sense, for example, in the Septuagint in Genesis 25:25, where it talks about the birth of Isaac and Esau. It says the first, the firstborn, came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. It's also used in Hebrews 11:28. By faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn, that those children born first in the Israelites' households, might not touch them. But there's a second meaning here as follows. Having a special status associated with a firstborn. In ancient times, the firstborn child had a primacy above the other children. He was reckoned a sort of prince or lord of the family, the chief heir. Though not born first, for example, when Jacob stole the inheritance of his elder brother, he gained the status of firstborn. And so we read in Genesis 27:29, part of Isaac's blessing upon Jacob as follows. Let people serve you. And nations bow down to you. Then he says, be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Now, I'll just say that this is the sense of the word that is necessary for good interpretation. Christ is firstborn in the sense of position and not order. And there's three reasons we have to interpret it this way. Well, I should say, I don't know if this is comprehensive. There's at least three reasons why we must interpret it this way. Number one, because we already showed that Christ was divine when we showed that he was the same essence as the Father. Number two, because nothing was created without Christ. And number three, because Christ is the firstborn of the dead, the chief heir of the new covenant. So the first one is easy. Christ can't be divine and created at the same time. No creature can be God. With a creature, he had to have been created in time. So he couldn't be in every way infinite. He cannot be immutable, for his being brought into existence would have been to enact a change. He cannot be eternal because he had a beginning. And he cannot be independent because he derived his being from another. A created being cannot be divine. And we already showed in no unclear terms that Christ is divine from the first part of the passage. Therefore, whatever way we interpret firstborn in the second part, it can't mean that Christ was created. The second one, like the first, is quite easy. Christ cannot have been created 
because he created all things. The net, you just have to read a little further, and it's clear what he means, what, what, or maybe it's more clear what is not meant by firstborn here. You just have to read a little further in the text, and it says this, for by him, that is Christ, all things were created. That's in verse 16. And then several of these things are listed. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. It then says it plainly again. All things were created through him. Now the next part, this is a little side note. It says, and for him. That's interesting. That reminds me of Romans eleven thirty-three through 36, where Paul says of God, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has been given a gift or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, which is it? Is it from God and for God, or is it from Christ and for Christ? The answer is yes, because Christ is divine. He's very God of very God. Now, if that's not enough for you, then we have in verse 17, we read that Christ is before all things and that in him all things hold together. Now, everything in the Colossians passage is positive. It says, positively, Christ made all things. And here are some of the all things that we mean. And then it says it again, Christ created all things. And then it says in a different way, he was before all things. Now, even if that's not good enough for you, there's a negative assertion of the same truth in John chapter 1. And I know you're all very familiar with these words. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Same uh, truth right here in verse 3. All things were made through him. And then negatively. And without him was not anything made that was made. Show me something that was made. That was made by Christ. We have positive assertions that he made everything. And then we had detailed assertions about the classifications of the things that he made. And then we have negative assertions that there isn't anything made that was not made by him. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit went through great pains, so forgive that language, but went through great pains to make sure it was absolutely crystal clear. Christ made all things and there's nothing that exists that doesn't exist from Christ as the creator. Matthew Henry comments on this passage as follows. Without him was not anything made, that is on John 1, without him was not anything made that was made. From the highest angel to the meanest worm, God the Father did nothing without him at that work, in that work, that is. This proves that he is God. For he that builds all things is God. And he references Hebrews 3, 4, which says, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And finally, in the third place, we must interpret it this way, that is firstborn, that word firstborn, 
because it is the witness of Scripture that Christ is the firstborn in the sense that he is the firstborn of the dead of God's new covenant people, redeemed in Christ, looking forward to the hope of their own resurrection. In this sense, Christ is our elder brother, and we fellow heirs with him. Colossians 1.17, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. And then Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christ was firstborn of creation in the sense of preeminence. He was not made, but eternally begotten. So much for the passage at hand in Colossians 1, 15 um, and, and the following verses. Um, what I'll do now is I'll, I'll conclude with a summary of that passage. And then I, what I want to do is, is put these truths in the context of our overarching argument, which is that um, the Son is God and the Son is a person. So in concluding what we've discussed in Colossians 1.15 and following, Christ being the very image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature means that he shares in the divine nature. It is not the same as man being made in the image of God. Christ is made, if you can excuse that word, of the same stuff as God. He shares his essence. In him the fullness of the Godhead dwells. He is exactly the God who created all things, such that when you see Christ, you see the Father. He is in the Father, and the Father is in him. He is very God of very God, and Scripture is abundantly clear on this. Now, there's many other ways to prove from the Scriptures that Jesus Christ, is the Son of God, is God. And if you pick up any good you know, reformed systematic theology, you'll find it fleshed out somewhere in there, probably. Um, some examples that assert that, um, that show us that Christ is, I should say, some ways to show that Christ is divine would include things like this. Um, divine names are attributed to Christ. Um, there are passages that assign divine attributes to Christ. There are passages that attribute divine works to Christ, like this one. Creation is a divine work, and it attributes it to Christ. And there are passages that give him divine honors. So uh, I don't know where everybody is in their understanding of theology, but wherever you are, just I don't want you to walk away thinking that the whole argument rests on Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1 and John 1. It's all over. And if you're interested in reading more of that, just pick up any good systematic theology. We probably have, I imagine, something in the library. You can ask Sam about it. Um, and you can see verse after verse after verse after verse showing that this is true. So it doesn't just rest on what I've said so far. So now I'd like to kind of close out this text by fitting these truths into our overall argument. The Son is God, and the Son is a person. Well, the first part's a little bit obvious at this point, I hope. The Son is God. Our passage makes this clear, and I've hammered this in enough this morning, so I just will add a little bit here. 
Consider now that we have worked our way through the passage how lofty this language is as a whole, and it's all assigned to Christ. The whole thing is about the preeminence of Christ. It's so full of praise and honor and glory that it would be unfitting and idolatrous if Christ was not divine. And so praise God that he has made his truth of the divinity of Christ abundantly clear. And you know, if you've studied church history, it's, it's wonderful to see how God worked in history right away to make sure his church knew what the Trinity was. That's among, those were among the first controversies that had to be settled. So praise God that while this is a mysterious truth and a hard truth to understand sometimes um, and to really flesh out, that he has made it abundantly clear in his scriptures. So in the second place, the Son is a person. This one, like the first, is also pretty easy. The Son is presented to us as a person. He's a literal human being. And so with Christ, it's pretty obvious being a true being truly man. He had a real body of flesh and blood, just like we do. He was born of a woman in the incarnation. He grew, he wept, he hungered, he thirsted, he grew tired, and he even became troubled in his soul. He spoke with people while he walked on the earth. He ate dinner with them. He traveled with them, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. He was pierced, he suffered, and he died for our sake. He rose from the dead and is even now seated at the right hand of God the Father, whoever lives and intercedes for us. Then consider the soteriological truths that show his personhood. He loves his people like the Father loves his people. He calls sinners to himself for eternal life. He holds on to those given him by the Father and will not allow any to be snatched from his hand. He will one day return in glory and will gather his elect from the four corners of the earth and will dwell with them in heaven, where he will be their God and they will be his people. Take that in a bit. Imagine how one day you will know the invisible God in the face of Jesus Christ. You will see his face if you are a Christian. You will actually meet him. And like Thomas, you will be able to observe his pierced hands and feet and the wound in his side. He will be right in front of your eyes. And this is for you who was his enemy. And so Christians, let us not take for granted our salvation. The mysterious and comprehensible God is your God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so praise him for it. I have some, I don't know how far I'll get through these, but I have some extended points of application. The way the sermon fell out, I could tell there would be some leftover time at the end. And so I kind of extended these points a little bit. So the first point of application is that Christ is an able redeemer. We have sinned against the holy God, not just because we do sinful things, but because we are born sinners by nature. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
But in that sin, we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. You see, we don't know anything about a sinful world. Can anybody raise their hand and point to a time in their life when they lived in a place where there was no sin? None of us can. We have all been born into this sinful world, and we don't know what it's like outside of sin. We don't really know what perfect holiness looks like. Not fully, at least. We know something of it from the life and the work of Jesus Christ, but we don't really know in our experience what that looks like. It follows that when we perceive our sin, we do not perceive the true depths of its depravity. We say things like, it's just a little white lie. We call people fools, which Christ equates to murder in his Sermon on the Mount. People make themselves judges of God's justice and criticize the idea of hell because man isn't really that bad. Most people are basically good people. One way to see the depths of our sin is to ponder on the great price that was paid to escape the wrath of God. I just spoke to you all day at length about how Jesus is very God of very God. I spoke at length about how we cannot comprehend fully the essence of God because he is completely other to everything we know. It is that God who we can't fit in our minds it is him who became flesh and dwelt among us. It is that God who was obedient to God the Father to the point of death so that his people would have eternal life. Christ suffered the wrath of God for your sins. God suffered the wrath of God the Father for your sins. Now, this was not a small thing. Now, what do I mean by that? It had to be that way. There was no other way. It's not like when you go maybe to pay for a hamburger or something and you give the waitress a $20 bill and you say, keep the change. The triune God did not say in the council of redemption, hey, you know, we have this sin problem with mankind, but we'd like to redeem for us a people that would dwell with us in heaven. So, hey, here's an idea. Let's kill the sun. That, that ought to more than cover the cost. I mean, maybe there's other things we could do, but, well, that'll do it, so let's just go with it. No, God would not kill his son for our sakes unless it was absolutely necessary. And it was. Because he is an infinitely holy God, and the debt we owe him for our sin is marked by that, or rather measured, by that infinitely high bar. None other but Christ gives us a righteousness whereby we could enter the wedding feast. A spirit creature cannot bring us up to that high bar of the holiness of God. He says, be holy as I am holy. Moreover, as a man, he can legally represent us in the gracious transaction of the gospel. This is clear in Hebrews two sixteen through 18. It says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, meaning us, by the way. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. 
Christ is exactly and precisely fit to be our Savior, and there could be no other way to save us from our sin. As God, he brings us to God. As man, he can take upon himself our sins. His ability to save is wrapped up in both his divinity and humanity. You take one of those away, and it's a different Christ, and he loses all power to save. You sit here this morning as a child of God, able to breathe a sigh of relief that you have peace with God because Christ is both divine and human. The essence of God is a principal element of your salvation. I have to say it again, don't you agree then that this is a practical doctrine to study? Sin is really, really bad. God is really, really holy and the gospel is really, really gracious. Praise God for a Redeemer that is both divine and human. For our salvation could not happen any other way than the way it did happen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second point of application, how do we know that we know him? We've spoken today about how Christ makes known to us the invisible God. But once he has been made known to us personally, how can we know for sure that we know him? Now, the answer isn't mysterious. It's simple. You may think we've got this great and mysterious God. He's beyond what we can comprehend. So surely once we know him, it's going to be this big deal. I'm going to go into a trance or something, have this big, wonderful experience and be able to tell all my friends about it. No, it's quite simple. It's obedience. We know that we know the Lord if we obey his commandments. You must not look for a grand experience or people falling down on their faces on the floor. We look for obedience. 1 John 2.3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandment. Though God is infinitely beyond our ability to comprehend, assurance that we know him does not come from some mystical or spiritual experience or epiphany. Now, I don't deny that the Spirit of God works in powerful ways in the church. I'm a cessationist through and through, but I do not deny that God works in his church in powerful ways, maybe in powerful ways that can be felt and in ways that we can't explain. But grand spiritual experiences are not our measure, according to the scripture, of assurance that we know the Lord. Simple, faithful obedience to the word of the Lord is our only assurance. This destroys any concept of carnal Christianity. This idea that a man can be saved and then later make Jesus his Lord in his life, before which time, before he makes him his Lord, he just lives on his sin just, just like he did before, before he made some kind of profession or signed a card or something like that. Well, what does this obedience look like? It's quite practical. It's all over the scriptures. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, love your parents. Or children, obey your parents. Love them too, but obey them. Um, have no gods before me. Uh, do not murder, do not steal, do not, um, do, not, do not lie, do not commit adultery. Men, don't look at women lustfully, lest you commit adultery with her in your heart. To everyone, do not be angry with others and say in your hearts, you fool, lest you commit murder. Positively love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
take an interest in the commands of the Lord and spend time with him in prayer and studying his word. If you know that the Lord is your savior, these are not hard things to do. In fact, as you progress in your sanctification, you will want to do these things more and more. And by his grace, you will be enabled to do them more and more. So while the doctrine of the Trinity may be a hard and complicated doctrine to grasp, and while these words that Christ is the image of the invisible God may be a hard thing to unpack completely, let's not overcomplicate things. The way to assurance is obedience. It is simple, faithful, boring obedience, doing the same thing day after day, just coming here, encouraging your fellow Christians, being faithful in your devotions, praying to the Lord, not being happy with your own sin and not just ignoring it and letting it run rampant in your life. That's it. You don't have to look for some grand experience. Now, my final point of application is that there is one path to God. It kind of follows from the last one. That God is revealed in and only in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have sat here all day listening to this inadequate preacher tell you about the divinity and humanity of Christ. And you may have thought all day about how foolish it seems. And to be completely honest with you, I don't know what that's like to sit and hear the things of God and think that it's foolish. I was saved at a very young age. I love the Lord as long I have loved the Lord as long as I can remember. And even before I was saved, I was so young, I just wanted to please my parents. And so never have I ever in my life heard the things of God and thought, oh, what foolishness. So I don't know what that's like. But I can tell you that I'm not here to trick you into joining a club. The Lord may save you today, take you to another city, or if you're not from this city, keep you in that other city. Or if he keeps you in this area, he may put you in another Bible-believing church in the area. When we preach the things of Christ and desire to see sinners saved, it's not that we want warm bodies in our seats. I say what I say because I believe it to be true. Because the Bible says it's true. There is a God who made you. He made all things, therefore he made you. The evidence is all around us. This God who made all things has placed demands upon you as his creature. He made you, so he owns you. And he has every right to place moral demands upon you because of that. But we all have broken those commands. We have lied, we have lusted, we have hated, we have committed idolatry, and anything else that you may have done. You may have done things you shouldn't have done. You may have not done things you should have done. You may have even thought things you shouldn't have thought. The reality is we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, and you will remain hopeless in these sins without Christ. God has assured us in his word that no sinner will go unpunished. And because of his great holiness in contrast with your terrible sin, that punishment is eternity in hell. And that is a hard thing for people who don't know Christ to understand. That seems like such a cruel thing. But we live in the context of evil. We don't know what purity looks like. Therefore, we don't know how terrible our sin is. But the gospel of which we Christians love to speak so much provides hope. All of mankind is being thrown a rope. 
We are all being offered salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you have to grab a hold of it. People who are Christians aren't special. We are sinners like everyone else. It's not even as if we're a little bit less of sinners than others who who have not come to know the Lord. We were as rotten as all the rest when we came to know the Lord. So how do you grab hold of that rope? You grab hold of that rope by repenting of your sins and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. By repenting, I mean you actually feel bad for your sins. There's something of an emotional element there in repentance. You confess them before God, and then you turn from them. That means you don't do them anymore. You live a different life than what you used to live. You will want to learn the obedience. Um, you will want to learn how to obey the commands of Christ. And what do I mean by belief? Well, I simply mean that you believe the things that I've said about Christ. You believe that they are true. You believe that you are a sinner in his hands. And you grab a hold of Christ as your only hope for salvation. And you hang on to that rope, which is Christ. Never in the history of the world has anyone ever done something so bad that they have been turned away. Christ is willing and able to receive every single sinner. He already knows everything you've done. He knows the very worst. He knows the very worst things that you will do, and yet still he offers you salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, believe, repent, and you will be saved. You don't have to get ready. There's no preparation involved. You don't have to get your life cleaned up first. You will look no better to God today than you, you will look no better tomorrow than you do today or the next week, or the next week, or the next week. No matter how cleaned up your life gets, there's literally nothing stopping you now from repenting of your sins and believing, and you will be saved. And all of these glorious truths that I've spoken of today that maybe you don't think are glorious, they will become glorious to you. And you will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will love him, you will love God, and you will love his people. And he is a good God. He is a good Savior. I don't know any true... I've never spoken with a true Christian who said, you know, I really regret repenting of my sins. I really regret believing. He's a good Lord, and it's a good life, and we have a wonderful hope to look forward to. And there's nothing stopping you from grabbing hold of that through repentance and faith. So I pray to the Lord that sinners will come to know him today. And with that, let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father... Lord, you are Lord, and besides you there is no other. And we know, Lord, that you are far, far above us, but we thank you, Lord, that you have condescended to your people in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can know that which is unknowable is a wonder of wonders. What a blessing it is, Lord, to have the gospel and to have that blessed hope of eternal life in the next life, and to know that even now as we move and progress on in our lives and as we sin and as we sometimes doubt uh, what wonderful assurances we have in the scriptures that 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 you are a faithful God you have promised to save us and you have given us a sufficient savior sufficient to overcome all of our sin 
even the worst, even the ones that we have not yet committed, even the very worst that we have committed, we can rest in him. We thank you for that. We pray that for your people today, you would encourage our faith in that truth. And we pray, Lord, we beg you, because we can't change people's hearts. We pray that you would change the hearts of some and that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and that we can count them as our brothers or sisters and that we will one day be side by side with them in heaven singing praises to the triune God in the very throne room of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.